Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dog Backwards, coming at you live from the basement of the Alamo. If you want to support podcasts like this, you can like, subscribe, share with your friends, yada, yada, yada. Or you could actually go to my website, kaylamore.tv, purchase my latest books called The Disappearing Garden, How to Survive in Babylon When You Were Made for Eden. I'm really proud of it. I put a lot of work into it, and I think you'll enjoy it. Without anything else being said, we have Lee Strobel on today. We had a great conversation about his new book, The Case for Heaven. So let's cue the intro and we'll get right into it. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Dog Backwards, where we look at life, faith, and theology from a different angle. I'm your host, Kayla Moore, and today we have Lee Strobel on, and I know we've been excited and waiting for this one. If you're not sure who Lee Strobel is, just go to your pastor's office, and he's going to have at least one of his books somewhere on the bookshelf. Uh, He's written many books. He's a former atheist-turned-Christian. He was a former award-winning legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, and he is a New York Times best-selling author. Thank you for being on here, Lee. Caleb, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Now, when I first got a copy of this book and I noticed that the subject was heaven, my first thought was, did you have a health scare that made you start thinking about this? And as soon as I started reading, yes, you did. Maybe tell us a little bit about that if you want to. Yeah, I did. Um, It was 10 years ago. Uh, My wife found me unconscious on the bedroom floor and called an ambulance. I woke up in the emergency room and the doctor said to me, you're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying. And I fell unconscious again. Um, I had an unusual condition called hyponatremia, which is a precipitous drop in blood sodium level. Uh, I lost a kidney and um, I was hovering between life and death um, for a period of time. And it it was a very clarifying experience. (laughs) It's nothing I would wish on anybody, but I'm kind of glad I went through it because, um, you know, I'm I'm a Christian. Um, I believe that if I close my eyes for the last time in this world, I'm going to open them in God's presence. But I'm also a bit of a skeptic. I mean, my background's in journalism and law. So, you know, you tend to be a little skeptical and uh, you want to know for sure um, what's going to happen. And that was kind of the seed that God planted and that has finally come to fruition in my book, The Case for Heaven. Now, you start off kind of discussing whether or not we even have a soul, which is a hard question yeah. to ask because I can't see it, you know. Yeah, I can't right. I can't weigh it and I don't know where it's at. My kids, I, I have three boys, uh, eight, five and two. And my eight year olds asking, like, what, where is my soul? Where right. is it? So how on earth could you ever if somebody was not a Christian, how could you make an argument for the soul? Yeah, I mean, a lot of scientists believe we are just a physical brain and indeed consciousness and free will are just illusions. We, you know, Sam Harris, the atheist uh, philosopher says, we, we have no free will, it's just an illusion, uh, which is an unlivable situation. Yeah. If it but yet true. he writes books about it, which I find yeah. weird. Like I had yeah. no choice but to write this book. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, how do you explain that? Well, I sought out a neuroscientist uh, with a PhD from Cambridge University, Dr. Sharon Dierichs. She'd written a book called Am I Just My Brain? Mm-hmm. And um, her conclusion is no, we're not just a brain, but we are a body and a spirit, a body and a consciousness, a body and a soul. Uh, and of course, the Bible has almost 100 references to the soul, but it never defines it. It, it sort of just presupposes it's yeah. there. And so uh, she, in this chapter, I believe, does a good job of establishing we do have a soul. But one of the ways she does that, she said, uh, Lee, think about this. What if there were a woman named Mary? And Mary was the world's leading expert 
on vision. She was a scientist. She understood how vision works. She understood the functioning of the human eye. She understood how the optic nerve works and the physics of vision. She understood everything about how vision functions, but she was born blind. Mm. And she said, now, what if all of a sudden she gained her sight? All of a sudden, would she know anything new about vision? And the answer is, of course she would. She would have the experience of sight. And, and that is what consciousness is. It is, the, um, uh, it, is, it is a seat of our volition, of our will, of our decision-making, of our consciousness. And, and um, it's like the other way she illustrates, she said, Lee, um, how do you describe the smell of coffee? I don't know. I'm a writer. I, how right. would you, you know, she said, oh, you could, you could talk about the chemical composition of caffeine yeah. and things, but that wouldn't do it. You have to experience it. And uh, so those things called qualia, uh, these things we need to experience, that is what our consciousness does. That's what it contributes. So we're not just a physical brain. If two things were identical, they would have to be the same in every respect. Right. And our physical brain does not have that um, uh, experiential. It's sort of a third person reality, whereas mm-hmm. our soul is sort of a first person reality. Now, one of the ways you even delve into this subject is near-death experiences, Yes, which I always had in the Bigfoot category. Like it might happen, but everything I've seen has been fake, but you made a pretty convincing argument. Like I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to have to reconsider this a little bit. Were you skeptical about that stuff? Absolutely. I, I, Caleb, I was just like you. I, I, thought new, I thought it was a very new agey kind of a thing. Yeah. I thought they were just hallucinations brought about by oxygen deprivation or something. Yeah. I was very skeptical about it. But I found out and read many of them. There are over 900 scholarly articles written in scientific and medical journals documenting near-death experiences. Um, one study of 55... Um, um, people with near-death experiences had zero brain waves. Yeah, they, they were flatlined, and yet they had consciousness during that time period. Another study of 93 um, um, individuals who made verifiable observations while they were separated from their body, um, 92% of those observations were absolutely accurate, and another 6% were almost always totally accurate. So something is going on. There were two things about near-death experiences that I learned that blew my mind. First of all, that there is corroboration for a lot of it. Um, What I mean by that is that people who experience this separation from their body see things and hear things that are otherwise impossible for them to see or hear. Um, One of the examples is a woman named Maria who died um, in a hospital uh, during surgery, and she just describes how her Um, her soul, her spirit lifted out of her body. She watched the resuscitation efforts and then she floated all the way through and out of the hospital. And then when she came back and returned to her body, um, she said, by the way, there's a a man's left-footed tennis shoe on the third floor ledge of the the roof of the hospital. And it's got a little wear on on the little toe and the shoelace is tucked under the heel. And they go up there and they find it. How do you explain that? That's the kind of corroboration I'm talking about. There are actually over 30 cases where people who are blind, many of them blind since birth, yeah. who were able to see during their near-death experiences. And then when they came back into their body, they could no longer see. One, one scientist said, this is medically impossible. 
Yeah. Um, you know, so what do you do with that kind of stuff? You have a little seven-year-old girl who drowns and who is um, profoundly comatose and uh, she, is she has zero brain activity. Uh, her heart hasn't beaten in 20 minutes. Mm. So she is profound. She's clinically dead. Yeah. Well, she does manage to recover three days later by God's grace somehow. But she says during the time that she was um, in that state, she was fully conscious. And she described not only being in the presence of God and meeting relatives who died, but she described following her parents home from the hospital. And she described what her mother cooked for dinner, what her brother was playing with, the little G.I. Joe Jeep on the floor, what her father was doing and reading at the time. I mean, how does she know this stuff? Or Pamela Reynolds. Pamela Reynolds had a, a brain aneurysm. She had a very unusual surgery where they cooled her body to 60 degrees. They gave her a, a deep anesthesia and uh, they drained every drop of blood from her brain. So three, three yeah. studies show or three uh, tests show that she was brain dead. She had no right. brain activity. Her eyes were taped shut. They put earplugs in her ears and, and, and filled her head with a hundred decibels of sound, which is the sound of a freight train going right next to you or a subway train. And um, she has this brain surgery. Well, she describes her soul separated from her body. She describes going into the presence of God. She describes talking to dead relatives, but here's where the corroboration comes in. She describes the conversation that happened in the operating room where the one nurse said, hey, we got a problem. Her arteries are too small. And the other nurse said, well, try the other leg. And then she described the, the very unusual um, surgical tools that were used to cut into her skull. Uh, yeah. Nobody would have anticipated what these things look like. Highly unusual. She even described the, the, the music Hotel California playing in the background uh, <laughs> during the surgery. Yeah. Um, so how do you explain that kind of thing? So my conclusion is that at a minimum, these near-death experiences tell us that there is some existence, some consciousness that exists after clinical death. And by the way, Lancet, the Lancet, which is the prestigious medical journal in uh, England, carried a study and, and concluded that there are no alternative explanations for near-death experiences that account for the entire phenomenon. So, yeah, I always just so that thought, was the first yeah. That was the, let me just go into the second one real quick and we talk yeah. about it. Um, that's the first thing, corroboration. Second thing is John Burke, who's a Christian pastor, uh, actually an old friend of mine, I've known him for 30 years, uh, who studied a thousand near-death experiences. And, and here's what he concluded, and this blew my mind. He concluded that yes, there's some peripheral differences between these experiences, but there's a core that's common to virtually all of them. And when you study what that core is, what you find is it is consistent with Christian theology. That blew my yeah. mind. So those two, so Caleb, I agree with you, man. I started as a skeptic and I had a 180 degree turn. I believe that where I can corroborate it, yeah. I believe the near-death experiences do indicate our consciousness survives our clinical death. That's what's great about your style of writing, which is the, the investigative reporter kind of stuff. You're not the expert, but you get to go to experts and ask the questions and figure out. Yeah. And uh, I, I would say I was pretty convinced by some of those, but I can manage like studying and reading all of those really can begin to change your mind. Yeah. What I'm curious about is like the little girl who 
followed her family home and saw yeah. the toys her brother was playing with. It almost shows like there was this period, like while she was still on earth, just outside of her body. Yeah. Now we don't have anything in scripture like that, like this right. limbo period. Do you, what are your thoughts on that? Is that because yeah. God knew yeah. she was coming back or. It's a great question, Caleb. And I, I think here's the way I understand it. Um, these people were not irreversibly dead. Okay. They're coming back. Yeah. So they're clinically dead. Many of them are declared dead. One woman was declared dead on her way to the morgue and she woke up and she was able to describe the ties that, that the surgeons used during her surgery. Um, so these people are clinically dead, but they're not irreversibly dead. Okay. And so those things we would expect from Christian theology in terms of um, the intermediate state and so forth don't quite come into play yet because they're yeah. not irreversibly. I think that's the difference. I've heard a theory and I, I was trying to remember the name of it, but it had something to do with quantum mechanics or something like that, where when we die, it was going to seem as though everyone had died at the exact same time. And because in some way we exist outside of time in your research, did you come across any of that? I don't remember that being addressed in the book. I don't know if it's a popular I think, theory. I think quantum uh, physics would tell us that we all really did die the moment the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. <laughs> I think that was, I think that was it. I think we all yeah. just died and we, yeah. we're not aware of it yet. Yeah, yeah. No, I. You know what? I didn't get into that. Um, yeah. um, it was kind of outside the scope of, of what. Sure, I was sure, sure. To know, but uh, well, you did address uh, a lot of stuff. Even one of the things when it came to these near-death experiences that even people of other religions yeah. um, didn't experience what their religion might say yeah. they would experience. That's right. We don't have Hindus, for instance, encountering Shiva. Um, yeah. You know, um, we, we don't have uh, people um, going through a reincarnation or, um, or being absorbed into the oneness or whatever. So, yeah, that's interesting to me. Now, one of the distinctions that John points out, he said, you have to be really careful about what people, how they interpret what happens to them versus what actually happens to them. So to give you an example, there are people who die and, and they, they encounter a figure dressed in white. Some people describe it as if his very clothes were woven out of light and he has a book. Now, a Hindu might, might experience that and say, oh, that was the book of karma. Mm -hmm. And he's looking at my karma. And yet that's not inconsistent with Christianity. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be a book of karma. It could be the book of life. I, I don't know. But um, uh, so how people interpret things can throw a monkey wrench into stuff. Um, we have to look really at what is it specifically that they experience. And by the way, quite a few people experience a hellish existence yeah. in their death experience. There's a guy named Howard Storm. He was an atheist. He was the head of the art department at a secular university. And um, he died and had the most, I mean, horrific experience where he was literally, as he said, turned into roadkill by demons. Mm. And he called out to Jesus and Jesus rescued him from that. And when he recovered, he not only renounced his atheism, he not only embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, he quit his tenured position at the university and now is the pastor of a small church. Um, wow. That's how life-changing it was. Yeah. And, and you talk about hell in this book. In fact, you yeah. dedicate 
quite a bit of time on it. And can I say that was my favorite part of the book? Um, I, I came out a while ago as an annihilationist. And yep. for somebody that is conservative Southern Baptist, I lost speaking gigs because of it. Um, people messaged me and said that they were afraid for my soul because of it. Um, but you treat it as one of the possible views when it comes to how we understand hell. Now, I, if I read into it almost, I'd say there was a part of you that was like, kind of maybe convinced for five minutes or so. What, what was your understanding of that? Uh, Was that a new perspective on hell for you? Well, more and more younger pastors especially are embracing annihilationism. I, I was interviewed recently uh, by a reporter who is a Seventh-day Adventist, and they believe in mm-hmm. annihilation. Yeah. And uh, he said, I just want to thank you for being fair in your book and really yeah. spelling out our position in a very fair way. And I'm, I was proud of that. I, I wanted to do yeah. that. Um, I do not think that since John Stott, the evangelical yeah. pope of the 20th century, um, <laughs> embraced yeah. annihilationism toward the end of his life. I don't think we ought to be calling it a heresy. And um, yeah, that's what know. I really appreciate because it brings the conversation into just healthy ground where it can be discussed without name calling. Right. Now, did now, you having said that? Yeah, that though, uh, and I do believe it's a secondary issue, but having sure, sure. said that, I was a surprised at the robust nature of the biblical case for it. I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. I was surprised at how strong the case is. But B, my conclusion personally was it did not carry the day. I sure. believe there were, there were too many uh, shortfalls in the uh, exegesis to carry the day. Uh, I can see how many people would embrace it. Um, I'm just not one of them. Um, I respect those that do, who draw it out of, out of biblical interpretation right. and not some emotionalism. Yeah. Um, so I'm not there. I, I, I disagree with it. But I wanted to present it fairly and accurately you and did. let kind of people make up their own mind. Did you interview Preston Sprinkle for that? I know you had some quotes in there from him. No, um, but I read his books. Sure. And uh, I read several books on the topic. And uh, there's some bright young theologians who are writing on this topic. Um, um, I also read Racing Hell, yeah. uh, uh, which is a, a rebuttal by Francis Chan, which I thought was yeah. very well done. Yeah, so, it was good. And Preston Sprinkle helped him write that book. And it was the process of writing that book that he began to change. Yeah, a a yeah. lot of people think that the name, when I say, well, have you heard of Preston Sprinkle? They think I'm making up a name. Um, <laughs> I know, like, that is an unusual name. Like, that guy doesn't really exist, Mr. Sprinkle. <laughs> um, but there was a quote that you had in the book of his, which yeah. I found really shocking. And I was like, man, I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, the quote was, um, he believes that it will be the dominant view in evangelical circles within 10 to 15 years. Yeah. And because I just now, I didn't know there was this group of people kind of making that decision. Mine came from Old Testament study. Yeah. And I started to have questions and I found um, like John Stoss and Preston Sprinkle. I found those people in my study and yeah. uh, really convinced me. So, yes, thank you. I appreciate that you were at least willing to cover it. Uh, maybe well, I'll get some of my speaking gigs back now. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you the honest yeah. truth. I, I really believe there are a number of pastors who secretly hold this position and are afraid of the fallout. They're afraid of losing their pastorate. They're afraid mm-hmm. of their denomination, writing them off. Um, they're afraid of losing speaking gigs. And so they're keeping quiet. I believe that. But again, yeah. I just, you know, I quote a guy at the end, a, a lawyer who's um, very conversant on this issue. And he says, you know, 
um, unfortunately, a lot of the debates about this stuff, you say um, the annihilation says this, the um, traditionalist says this, and it seems like it's a standoff. But he says it's not really a standoff because in the end, the annihilation case does not carry the day. That's kind of where I'm sure, at. Sure, sure. Fair enough. Hold this position. Yeah. Okay. So uh, back to heaven. What am I going to do all day? Am I going to yeah. be bored? Am I on it? I mean, we're going to be a Wrigley Field. We're going to be a Wrigley Field watching the Cubs win a World Series every year. That might be hell for some of us, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for you Cardinal fans, it'll be be hell. No, I, you know, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. You know, the Bible says that uh, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even conceived of what God has in store for those who love Him. I, you know, the Bible uses some metaphors. But it doesn't really spell it out that clearly. Right. Uh, but the, but Revelation seems to say that, you know, God is not going to make new things. He's going to make things new. And so, um, uh, you know, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And I believe it's a remaking of our our world uh, without sin. Um, yeah. uh, and and um, it will be a very physical place. It'll be theocentric, that is, oriented around worshiping God, but also be real that we'll have friendships, we'll have relationships. And um, so, uh, you know, I love it the way Jesus said it when in, uh, what is it, John chapter 14, the first couple of uh, verses where he says the disciples, um, um, basically, don't be afraid of death. My father's house has many rooms. Right. Uh, and he uses the metaphor of a home. And yeah. I think that metaphor speaks volumes to me because if you've ever been, as I'm sure you have been in a third world country in difficult circumstances, living out of a knapsack or a suitcase for a long period of time, and, and you begin to have homesickness, you miss your home. And when you finally get home and you crawl into your own bed and you're in your own house, it's, it's, it's such a sense of warmth and security and love. And, 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 and Jesus is using that metaphor to say, this is what heaven is going to be like. Um, you know, this is not our home. Right. We're only here temporarily. Heaven is our permanent home. I, I love that he uses that. Um, I often think of it as like the Garden of Eden 2.0. It, it yes. starts off, you know, where we're supposed to build and we're supposed to do all this stuff. And while we're on our exodus, when we come home, God's yeah. done all the building for us, right? It's, yeah. now, it's now a garden city. And yes. he's basically terraformed the whole world. So we end yeah. up here. Yes. We're not not some athral plane disembodied. Right. Now my the question my mother would want me to ask, will my son still be covered in tattoos when he gets there? <laughs> oh, wow, I didn't right. cover that. Right? Is, is, uh, cuz I people say, "Oh, don't you know those are permanent?" I say, "No, they're temporary, right? Yeah. They 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 die with this body, right?" Well, will our resurrected body, you know, Jesus body still bore That's true. the uh, the mark. So, will your body still bear the mm. tattoos? That's a great, I have no idea. That is an interesting question. I wish I'd covered that in the book. I better go get more then. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We'll we'll write it together. Right, right. There you go. There you go. Um, So we're, how are we going to understand time? Are we going to, is it going to feel like eternity or do you have any sense? I mean, because a lot of this is just guessing work when it comes to heaven. And I think I think the fact that it's guessing work is a positive thing, because if heaven were easily grasped, if we were easily able to say, oh, OK, that's what heaven's going to be like. It can't be that great. Yeah. But 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 God is saying, yes, it's a mystery because you can't 
you can't get it yet. You don't understand. You couldn't understand it yet. I think the fact that God believes we cannot grasp it at this time is why he is vague about it and why he uses metaphors. For instance, um, there are people who come back from near-death experiences having seen colors that are not in this world. Yeah. Now, when you think about that, our color spectrum is based on the sun. It's based on the light of the sun. In heaven, where God provides the light in some way that I don't quite understand, um, we're going we're gonna to see colors that we, we will never have seen before. But how do you explain that? To, how can you show that? You can't. You can't explain it to yeah, someone who's not That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's that's incredible to just to kind of sit there and yeah. meditate on that. There's good there's new colors, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, that my it. mind, my mind couldn't handle what God has prepared for us. Um that's in the right. Coming. We yeah. we can't comprehend. I think that's the key. We can't comprehend it because it is so outside of experience because it is so wonderful. You think of the same God that created the heavens and the, the yeah. galaxies and the, and, and the stars and plant life and humankind and animals. And so this God who's that creative wants to create a habitat for you. Yeah. Eternity. That will be a place of joy and fulfillment and satisfaction and adventure. Um, you know, God is infinite. So we'll never get to the end of exploring God. Right. Um, it just blows my mind. I'm, I'm ever more anxious to get there. The thing I, I hope and pray for when we get there, there's only really one thing that I want. I, yeah. since a young child, I was always, I learned to read from comic books. Yeah. I, I need to be able to fly. If I get to heaven and I can't fly like Superman, I'm going to be a little disappointed. I'm sure I won't be disappointed, well, but that's, that's my one desire. There are well-documented near-death experiences where people literally fly. Yes, and, <laughs> right. It brings me hope. They, yeah. Where all they have to do is think, I want to yeah. be in such and such a place, and all of a sudden you're there. Wow. And you yeah. see Jesus, you know, appearing in yeah. the room with Thomas. Um, so maybe we'll be able to walk through walls. Uh, yeah. Who knows what our resurrected bodies can do? I hope we can fly. That would be awesome. Um, what is your next book on? Have you even started to thinking about one? If not, I have one suggested for you. Good. I'd love the suggestion. So, um, the next guest I have on is, uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, who I'm sure you're familiar with, yeah. and we're talking about little green men. And so oh. I would love to hear you do an investigation into do aliens exist, right? Yeah. That would that that would be a fascinating topic. I gotta give you that. Yeah. I gotta get not a lot in scripture yeah. about it. But. No, there's not. There's not <laughs> really. Yeah, but maybe you can get some CIA experts to spill their beans to you. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, you, I don't know. I'm I'm gonna be 70 years old um, on my next birthday, and um, uh, you know, unless God plants something in my heart that right. uh, I feel moved to write, maybe this is my last book. I don't I don't know. Well, if it is, it's an excellent one. Thank you, Mr. Strobel, for your time. I want to recommend everybody that's listening. Um, it's not quite out yet. Do you know what's the release date for it? Yeah, Tuesday. Uh, the On Tuesday. Yeah. Okay, so this will they come can, out tomorrow. So if yeah. They go, if they go to Case for Heaven, one word, caseforheaven.com, okay. they can pre-order. They can uh, read it free, free chapter anyway to get a sense Great. of it. Well, thank you, Mr. Strobel. I really appreciate having this conversation with you. And God bless. Thanks for all you do. Thanks, Caleb. Great to meet you. Blessings on you.